Welcome to Euros Harley's Finding the Front, where we get to know the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies, providing you with real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here's your host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and it's awesome that you could tune in to another episode of Euros Harley's Finding the Front. For those of you who are not familiar with Euros Harley's, we are a proudly Western Australian leading financial services business, incorporating private wealth, research, institutional sales, and corporate finance. With private wealth, we offer a diversified range of personalised wealth management and financial services. Our institutional team form the eyes and ears on the ground here in WA for our institutional clients, both domestically and globally. And our corporate finance team, armed with deep relationships and knowledge across WA resources and industrial sectors, have a long history of assisting small to mid-cap WA companies throughout their business life cycle. If you'd like to learn more about Euros Hartleys and the services we provide, please do not hesitate to contact us or visit our website at www.eurosheartleys.com. Well, Finding the Front listeners, our guest today is an absolute ripper. We are lucky he could squeeze some time in with us on his whirlwind trip to Perth from Sydney. Our guest is none other than 40-plus year funds management industry icon, Mr. Jeff Wilson, AO, the Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Wilson Asset Management. There is so much packed into this conversation that it is very hard to cover it off in an intro, but there are many, many takeaways from a journey in investment management that has seen Jeff build a business that now manages some $5 billion in shareholder capital on behalf of more than 130,000 retail investors. In the first half of this podcast, that was supposed to go for only an hour, but we managed to stretch it out, we cover off on Jeff growing up, some of the sliding door moments he encountered, his career history and learnings both domestically and internationally, including working in the extravagant 80s and then some of his insights on the impact of the 1987 crash. We then look at his views on his decision to go out on his own and kickstart Wilson Asset Management. In the second half, we go through the detail of the early days of Wilson Asset Management, the keys to its success so far, the setting up of the pioneering future generation companies to give back, being an advocate for retail investors and the importance of this role and the challenges that come with it. And then finish off with some general questions to Jeff on funds management, investing, and important factors to consider and these views on the markets going forward. So, without further ado, it gives me an enormous pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Wilson Asset Management and great guy, Mr. Jeff Wilson. 
Hi, Jeff, and thanks very much straight up for taking the time out of your hugely busy schedule over here in Perth for, for some 24 hours, I'd imagine. It's a huge... Oh, a little longer. A little well, longer. Oh, actually, oh, sorry, a little less. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Perth, though. <laughs> yeah, oh, look, we are so yeah. privileged to have you take time out of your schedule to come and join us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. So welcome, and thanks a lot for taking the time. No, hey, good to be here, and as I did mention, I, I do love Perth, and Back in was it the late late 80s, I was you know sort of having a bit of crisis of whether I wanted to stay in the finance industry. Right. And I took a time off with my then girlfriend, now wife, and we drove around Australia. And when we got to Perth, we just couldn't believe how beautiful the place is. And, and we stayed here the longest of anywhere. And we're saying if we could live in a city, yep. Perth would be the one. Like to me, you know, I was talking to one of the guys you know, that's over here with me this morning. I went for a run. You've got the Swan River there, you saw the dolphins. And it, it, to me, is just one of the most beautiful. Well, it is the most beautiful city in Australia and you know, well, maybe the world. You know, if you're Western me. Australian, it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeff, as everyone knows who listens to Finding the Front, we really do try and learn a bit about your background and the people who shaped you and mentors and influences that have helped take your life in the way it has and the direction it's gone in. So, my homework was that I noted you were actually born in New Zealand, but you grew up in Melbourne. Well, the mum's side of the family, mum came from New Zealand. Right. Uh, and actually, she flew from New Zealand to Perth and she was working here as a nurse. And then I think on her way back to New Zealand, she went to Melbourne and then met my father, who was a doctor. On the way through? Yeah, on the way through in Melbourne. So we actually were brought up in Melbourne and one of my... my Sister was born in the UK. Dad was working over there. In those days, it was big for doctors. You know, you'd work in Australia and then you'd go and get some international experience and work in the UK. And they're, they're on the boat coming back and I think they went via New Zealand. And so I just happened to be dropped off there, as in born uh, there. That's <laughs> and li- that lived, right? lived there three months. Yeah, lived there three months. And, and Dad kept going with the, my elder brother and elder sister to Melbourne and then Mum stayed there with her family, had me. And then joined him three months later. So I think when I went to get my first passport, you know, I rang up the Australian embassy, oh, yeah, whatever it is that you've got to do for your passport, and said, look, I'd like to – I was in my early 20s, I'd like to get my Australian passport. And they said, well, where were you born? I said, New Zealand. And they said, well, you've got to get a New Zealand passport. And I said, but hold it, I lived here all my life. It yeah. was only the first three months. Anyway, so that's, that's, how, so that's how New Zealand fits in. <laughs> that's how New Zealand came into the equation. <laughs> So interestingly, though, you're one yeah, of six. I'm one of six, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I was the, well, hey, why am I here? Maybe because I was the third, you know, so the middle child. So you're trying, yeah. you're trying to prove yourself. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. My father was a doctor, mother was a nurse, elder brother was a doctor, elder sister was a nurse. And then I actually, I wanted to be a vet at one stage. And I got into Massey University to do vet science and then just on the, I didn't do that well in HSC. In those days in Melbourne, you had to pass English to pass you know, your HSC. You know, yes. Luckily, you know, maybe this is an advantage or a disadvantage. I was better with, at maths, right. but not, not very good at English. And so I failed my English, so then I failed my HSC. So I actually went back to repeat HSC. And in Melbourne, you know, I was, went to St Kevin's and I went back to repeat at Melbourne High. And then I got in La Trobe University, had a, was innovative. Yes, and they took your, your marks minus your English. So I got into science there and 
Just out of interest, yeah. though, you know, in terms of your education, you did your primary schooling in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you went to St. Kevin's. Yeah, yeah. St. Rocks and St. Kevin's. Good right. Catholic. St. Rocks and yeah. then St. Kevin's, right. Yeah. And so when you were going through school, it's interesting you noted that you failed your HSC. How did you find school? Was it school was it an easy thing? Just a or? bit of, just, yeah. Well, in terms of academically. Yes. Oh, no, I think it was a challenge. Like, like I mean, I'm casting my mind back to the old days of having to do homework. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know if anyone liked doing homework. <laughs> <laughs> no. no I, I didn't. And I tried to do as little as I could. I was sort of, you know, focused on minimum effort, maximum return. Well, that was when I was at school. And, you know, for some reason, there's a, myself and a few other guys, we liked gambling, like the horse races. So, right. So my last term at school, when you do, we were doing HSC, we had every Wednesday off to study. Yes. So myself and another guy, we'd tell our parents we're going to school to actually study at school and we'd head out to the midweek races and you know, go to Spencer Street Station and then head off to either Cranbourne or Kyneton or Mornington and you know, spend the day at the races. So I didn't sort of study. You know, I was a little bit under on the amount of effort I put in. <laughs> but when I repeated, before I started, I don't think I ever read the books I was meant to read that year of HSC. But when I did repeat, you know, I did pay attention then. And I, before we started, I'd, yeah, I'd read the books. And then two weeks in, I got the offer to go to uni. So then I, mum and dad were away. And, and then it I, started. Yeah, I just started. Yeah, started at uni. If we just go back a step, I'm just trying to draw from this point where the connection that ultimately came into the financial markets may have come from. Oh, when oh you... no, no, no that's, that's simple. Yeah, yeah, because when Dad's father died, well, he, Dad's father invested in the market. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. To me, there's some – it's an interesting dilemma or an actually interesting situation where I find the market is a real challenge. So when people are intellectually challenged – People with high IQs like the challenge of the market, I think. Yeah, you don't need that yes. to be very successful. Yeah, maybe which I've proved. <laughs> yeah. But the, yeah, it's, it's you know, I think dad's dad, you know, was a doctor and obviously they liked the challenge and, and he invested in the market. And when dad's dad, when my grandfather died, then dad had a choice of either taking cash or shares in a company called Mount Morgan, it was. Right. It ended up being taken over by Western Mining. So Dad took the shares. So, like, as a teenager, Dad, you know, would usually work late, so he'd come home, have dinner after we'd had dinner, and then he'd sit in a chair and, and he'd read the paper. But he spent most of his time looking at this one page, and I remember I asked him, you know, what's this page you're looking at? And it was the page that had all the share prices on and I you know, just had numbers from my perspective and he said, oh, well, that's the stock market. I actually looked down. I remember it was probably 14 or 15. I, I looked down the list. There was one called Cox Brothers. It was a Melbourne retailer. I didn't know that, but it just Cox Brothers and it was trading at a cent and I thought I could afford that. <laughs> so and then a, oh, a couple of months later, I was looking down the list again and I looked down and it was half a cent. And in those days, they'd move in half cent lots. And then a few months later, I looked and it was back to a cent. And I thought, geez, if I'd bought them at half a cent and it had gone to a cent, I would have made 100% of my money. And then about three or four months later, I was looking down the list. Yeah, Dad obviously was reading it. And then I was looking down the list and I couldn't find them. And I said, Dad, where's it gone? And he said, oh, it's gone under. 
oh. the company. <laughs> Harsh lessons. <Yeah. laughs> well, no, luckily I never bought them. Oh, right. Yeah, and because Dad, and he loved the market. Actually, he would have done really well in Western Australia because he liked mining. Yes. He liked mining and he liked exploration companies and you know, he liked the high risk. And then very early on, you know, a few years later, I think when I was at uni, still didn't understand you know, how the market worked or anything like that. Again, I was thinking I was talking to Dad and we are talking about the market and then he said, yeah, if you want to buy some shares, I'll lend you some money. So I remember looking down the list and I found a company called, in those days it was probably mid-70s, and it was a company called Timor Oil and Gas and that was trading at 10 cents. And that was sort of one of the cheaper ones. And, I, hey, I had no idea what it did. Obviously, it was in oil and gas, yes, uh, yes. the name. It was just a name on the list. Yeah, the name on the list. It was, I was focused on the 10 cents. Because my logic is if I, I bought and he lent me $1,000, so I bought $1,000 worth at 10 cents. My logic was if it went to 12 cents, I'll make 20% of my money. That was my logic. So it actually went to 12 cents. So I sold half and then I thought I'll keep the other half. And then I didn't even know. It was drilling for oil. And it actually went to 30-something cents and I sold the other half at 30-something cents. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then it didn't find anything. It went back down to <laughs> lower than where it was. But maybe that was bad for me because like probably going to the races and winning on the first uh, race thing, how easy is this? Yeah, anyone um, can do this. Yeah, yeah. So that was – but Dad had – like when we turned 21, he'd given us some shares. He'd bought you know, shares for us and put them into our own name. And so, yeah, so there was – there's a little bit of stock that was the market. environment in a, a, which you but were growing only, up, but only a little bit. But yes. I didn't, I didn't understand it at all. And then after I finished uni, like it was back, yeah. You know, then we're talking about you know late seventies, early eighties, and it was a tough time economically. It was tough. Unemployment was up at ten percent, and the like. I was a qualified. You know, I did a science degree, so I was qualified to be an industrial chemist in theory. Yeah, you know, I had a mate who was working at Roundtree Hoadley as an industrial chemist. I went and met him there and he was in his sort of white coat and checking the cocoa powder against standards and I thought, geez, I don't want to do that. Right. But it was hard to get a job. So, so, so just, yeah. just there, Jeff, we often ask on Finding the Front, when you're going through school and you've, you're having this immersion in a slight way, but immersion into the stock market, you understand a little oh, bit about no, it? No, I wouldn't give it that much credit. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's, it's a good story now. Because I'm in the stock market and yes. I've been successful in it. It really was just a part-time, oh, no, no, not even that. No, no, just just a brush. Yes. Where, yeah, I could have said my mum was a ballet dancer and then I saw a few moves, saw a do, and I tried a few and then I was yeah, a, yeah, a very successful ballet dancer. Yeah, so yeah. it was just a real brush. And it, so yeah. when you were coming out then, yeah. did you really have any understanding of what you wanted to do with your life? None. 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 Right. Well, it, it, well, <laughs> Much to my parents' chagrin. Like growing up, of course, you know, when you're younger, I want to be a fireman. I want, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, the various things. I think at one stage I wanted to be a teacher. One stage, and this is, you know, my parents would probably quiver a little bit. Yeah, the, yeah at one stage I thought I'd be a bookmaker. Yes. <laughs> I liked that. <laughs> and, yes, yeah, so I had, had no idea. No idea. Yeah, okay. and, and, and then going for a job the logical one was be an industrial chemist. Yes. But then I, I thought, I don't know if I necessarily want to do that. The fact is I couldn't get a job. And and my last couple of years at uni, I was working down the Sevier Hotel in Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, which is, it's now called the George Hotel. It's like the King's Cross of Sydney. That was where I worked, the pub I worked with right. uh, down in, in Melbourne. And 
I couldn't get a job. Like I went for jobs at everything. I went for jobs as a you know, a trainee manager at Containers. I went for a job at Cadbury Sweeps in the marketing department. I just looked, you know, Saturday, you, well, you look online these days, but I just looked at the Saturday paper and I applied for all the jobs I could could get. Couldn't get a job. Couldn't get a job. And, and I was working down the pub. I'd been there for about a year. I was mainly the bottle shop. But then my bosses said, and this is, to me, this is probably how your parents are so important to you. Yes. Where they probably ask you questions. Yeah, you know, it's probably the, yeah, you know, the challenge or for the parent is is not to tell the child what to do, but ask them questions and get them to make the right decisions. Because yeah, you know, I'm I'm 22, I'm working down the pub. The guys I worked for who owned the George Hotel, they had just bought a, a pub in Richmond, and I was getting paid thirteen thousand dollars a year. And they said, would you like to go and manage that pub? So I was 22. They were going to pay me $20,000 a year and a percentage of the profit. Now, why didn't I accept that? I don't know. I assume... For someone who was looking for a job, it seems pretty attractive. Yeah, and I've worked there. I knew them well, really good guys, good yes. operators. I'd been working for them for a year. Like, to me, it was probably nearly a logical extension. But for some reason, I didn't. You know, it was one of those sliding door moments. I could have... Uh, you, we, well, we probably wouldn't be talking. Yeah, that's right. No, it'd be a, it'd be a totally different life. Yeah, yeah, totally. And 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 I assume it's my parents asked me a few questions and said, "Oh, yeah, like you've done your degree." And yeah, because I was a bit rebellious as a child. I think at one stage, when yeah, the, the logic was you go to uni after school, and I think I worked out how much it cost mum and dad to send me to school. And when I didn't want to go to uni, I'd worked it out and I said, "Look, I'm going to go and work, and I'll pay you back the money." <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was, but that was, that was sort of my more my logic. Yes, but in yes. the end, I you know, sort of obviously gave in to re- I couldn't rebel enough and ended up going to uni. So it's an interesting, you know, lead up into where you ended up because yes. you've gone through school. HSC was tough, failed yeah. it. Yeah, got into the university with Latrobe. Yeah, and then came out as an industrial chemist. Ended up in a pub. Yeah. I, I understand you got to watch Midnight Oil and Men at Work live at the pub now and then. Well, it was, yeah, the CBR. Yeah, I, one of the great things is they had a, a little room up the top called the Crystal Ballroom. And even though I worked at the bottle shop, I used to work on Saturday nights up the Crystal Ballroom. And that's where Midnight Oil, Men at Work, you know, just everyone, whatever bands were going at that time, they all went through there. And, and literally, you know, we're sitting, what, a metre away. You're a metre away from them. It was... Pretty special. Uh, oh, pretty special. And it was... Probably wouldn't work these days on health and safety, but when you're under, so the crystal ballroom is on the first floor. If you're on the on the ground floor looking up, you could actually see the ceiling, which was the floor of the crystal ballroom, going up and down, moving. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh my goodness! It was, uh, yeah, it was a no- it, it was well, heaving. Yeah, it was heaving. Yeah, Jeff, let's just talk about how you ended up down this financial path. Yes. So you've come out. You've eventually landed a job. Now, you, yes. you landed a job at Scottish Amicable. That was the start of your journey into the financial services or finance or investment pathway. Could you just give us a little bit of, A, an understanding on your role at Scottish Amicable and then how that shaped you? Because I know that was a pretty pivotal part. Okay. Maybe we take a step back a little further. Yeah. Like in terms of getting the job. Yes. So, again, I was looking for any job. And I'd applied for a whole lot of jobs. And one of the jobs I applied for, you know, a year or so down the track, was Scottish Amicable. And, you know, when I went for the interview, of course, you know, 
typical male, prep myself for the interview, you know, talk a good game, and I ended up getting the job. So my then boss, a gentleman called Chris Walker, there was only three of us in the investment department. Don Brinkworth was the investment manager, then Chris Walker, and I, I was the trainee, you know, trainee fund manager or, or analyst. Yeah, so Chris sits me down and says, oh, look, just for the first couple of days, I'd just like you to read these research reports. So he gave me a whole lot of research reports. I read them. And then after day two, he says to me, look, I just want to understand sort of what your knowledge is. And you know, like, do you know what a PE is? And I said, no. And then he said, okay, do you know what EPS is or earnings per share? And I said, no. So then he realised I knew nothing about the stock market. You were green. Well, I did. I knew nothing about the stock market, <laughs> <laughs> except if you buy a share. Yeah, I, I just understood leverage. If you bought a share at 10 cents, it goes to 20 cents, you make 100% of your money. That's Yeah. Yeah, so I knew nothing about the market. Yeah, so then at least Chris knew where he was starting with. And, and in terms of that being a first job, you know, everyone, I think, says that your first jobs tend to shape you. Mm. Uh, and one of the great things about Scottish Amicable, they really looked for those undervalued, small growth industrial companies. And we spent, and they were big, like this is, you know, the early 80s, and they were big going and meeting management of those companies. Yes. And so we spent, you know, I remember, well, one of the funny things, the first, well, probably the first three or four months with Chris, Chris loved having a punt as well. So we would take quadrellas. Yeah, this is my immediate boss. Yes. A bit of bonding, I suppose. <laughs> and we'd put in, like he'd put in half the money and I'd put in half the money. I think I think my salary was, I was pretty much on the same salary as the pub. I think it might have been $14,000. Right. A slight, slight increase from the pub a year. And I was pretty much, for the pool that we'd put in of the money to take the quadrellas each week, it was nearly all my salary. And I think after two months, we didn't have a win. And I said to Chris, hey, look, <laughs> I'm, I'm out. <laughs> Even though you're, I can't do it anymore. And then, of We've course, bonded enough. Well, of course, what happens? <laughs> then he gets the quadrilla. <laughs> oh, always anyway, the way. That's life. So to me, it was, yeah, it was a great learning exercise for me. It, it was, there was a big focus on meeting management. Right. A big focus. Like we'd go wherever it was. Like there was, in those days, there was a lot of textile companies listed. You know, the, the market was significantly different to where it is now. There was a company called uh, Maryborough Knitting Mills. So we went up to Maryborough you know, and did our company visit up there. And then because it was Chris and myself, then we took the afternoon off and went to the Maryborough Trots <laughs> for the afternoon. But, you know, we, we'd go and see a lot of companies in those days because the fund managers weren't going to see companies in those days. We'd sit down with the management and they'd show us their budgets and what they're trying to achieve. You know, obviously, these days, they don't really give you that amount of detail. Yes. You know, when you go and see them, it's got to be a lot more public. Yes. But yeah, and I really sort of learnt there that you, know, you really need to spend time with a company, understand how they make money, and really sort of focus on understanding the person that's managing effectively that company on your behalf what they're going to do with it and, and just how important that was. And that really placed a foundation on the importance of management for your career going forward. Full stop. Yeah, yes. exactly. The, yeah, a, a significant one. That's right. And the, and the logic of sitting down with someone and sort of understanding what's driving them, understanding what they're trying to achieve, 
understanding clearly how they make their money. The funny thing is, we'll probably come back to a bit more of the investment, but probably about 10 years ago, I remember going to a lunch and, you know, broker's lunch, and they had, you know, a CEO of a company. And, and I hadn't done any analysis of the company. And some, like I'm 65 now, so I was 55. So in the room, again, I, I was old in the room. There was a lot of other younger fund managers there that or analysts that had you know, done a lot of work on the company. And then they start their presentation to company. And, and I just said, before you start, can you just clearly explain to me how you make money? And everyone laughed. But then he did explain. And I think, I don't know if ever, I think what I find with a lot of people, they just assume you understand how the company makes money. Yes. And you've really got to drill in and understand clearly how the company makes money clearly understand what their costs are, clearly understand what their revenue is and the drivers for that those costs and revenues. And then obviously the difference between the cost and revenue is the profit. Yeah, so to me, I think a lot of people take it for granted. They look at a company as an analyst and you know, they just assume, oh, this is how they make money rather than sort of drilling in and-, and Really understanding and, it. Yeah, really understanding it. Anyway, that's, that's very a, bit, interesting. a bit left field. No, yeah. no, so that foundation, you moved on to Potter Partners. Yes. And had quite a bit of time with them, Melbourne, Sydney, and ended up in London with them as well. Yeah. Well, do you want a bit of flavour on that? Yeah, because I was going to say, because that was a really interesting period of time. Well, no, let me, let me, we'll get to that interesting period of time, but to me, it's just a, an interesting journey. So I'm a Scottish amicable. I've been there for a, a year and a half. What happened is we had actually sold quite early. You know, back then, you know, this was the late 70s, you know, just going into the early 80s. And the market was still quite strong. But we had increased our cash weighting quite significantly and we're underperforming. Right. And the big boss, I think he was getting kicked. So then he got Chris and myself in individually and was trying to sort of rev us up. Uh, or would say, hey, look, yeah, we've really got to lift our game. We're not doing... Yeah, you know, we're not doing a good enough job, et cetera. So I went in and and here, like I'm a 20, what, three-year-old or something like that, first job, sort of learning learning what it's what it's like. I'm sitting down with the big boss and he says, look, I'm not sure if you could be a square peg in a round hole. So mm. then I think to myself, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I've made a mistake. <laughs> Maybe this isn't for me. And I remember that night. There was a company called Coho Oil and Gas and they were doing a presentation that night at AC Goods, an old broker that used to be around. I went to that presentation and I'm there with – so I'm 23 and I'm probably there. The, the other people in the presentation, you know, the, the other fund managers, I think when we're having you know, drinks after the presentation, I was just chatting to – I was in a group of another three or four and they, say they were in their 30s or 40s. They seemed really old to me. Yes. And, and I said to them, I asked all three of them, I said, what do you think the market will do? And then they started, they didn't quite know and then one was saying something and, that, and I thought to myself after that, I thought even though my boss might have said there's no place for me, you know, like I'm a square peg in a round hole in terms yes. of what I'm doing, I thought, hey, they don't know what they're doing so there's a place for me in this industry somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and they were the experienced ones. So that was that's how I justified it to myself. Yes. Uh, and then things went on and I, I stayed a Scottish amicable. And I, I think then they employed someone and I found out he had less experience than me. I think he only had a year's experience and they were, found out they were paying him more than me. 
So then I thought, oh, well, they don't really value me. Yes. And so I thought, oh, well, it's probably time to go. And what I did realise around that time, it was interesting, the the people in the market, like the fund managers, they were boring. Like it was really – fund managers back there, it was like they had a personality bypass and all the fund people were on the stock-breaking side. And, you know, like I'm in my early 20s, so I thought, hey, look, that's what I'm going to do. That's my next stage. Yeah, and yeah. Then, then the weird thing is I'm getting in the lift to go to work. This is in Queen Street. I get in the lift and there was this good-looking lady, <laughs> girl in the lift – who I'd seen at the pub, I think, the night before or somewhere, and we just started chatting. And I said, oh, what, what area do you work in? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm a headhunter. So I, I said, oh, I might come down and see you. So I went down and saw her and I said, hey, I think I need to move on. You got any jobs in finance? And, and this is, you know, like I was talking about sliding door moments. Yes. And this is why parents are so important. And like to me – I know some people only have one parent or, or no parents. Yeah, you know, it's a tougher journey. And I, I know that yeah, you know, people with one parent tend to do incredible things. Yeah, you know, like there's more, I think, prime ministers that have only had one parent, et cetera. But that the guidance the parents give you, the, the subtle guidance, is, is so important because she ended up she found a job for me and it was to work down at the stock exchange. And I think it was in sort of a communications department or something like that. Yes. So and that was nineteen thousand dollars, and I was on fourteen thousand. So, you know, she organised the interview for me, and again, I don't know why, but the day before I was due to go and have the interview, I rang her up and said, "Hey, look, I don't want to go to the interview. It's not for me." Well, yeah. And why did I come to that decision? It must be my yeah. parents sort of saying. Like, hey, you've done this, you're doing this. Is that the right course or yeah. is that where you want to go? So to me, another sliding door moment. Yes, like yes. I could still be down the ASX <laughs> working there. And, and, and in the end, I ended up getting, yeah, I think she, I don't know if it was, yeah, I think it was through her. She, she, there was a job at Potter Partners. And so then I went down in the research department. So then I, I went down there and applied for the job and ended up getting it. And there. you got it. Yeah. And that, as I say, that was a quite a significant period of time with Potter Partners. Well, and also I had my boss then was a gentleman called Rob Thomas. Right. And the interesting thing is, you know, how you learn, you, know, you pick up things along the way. And and Rob, was, he was probably one of the best managers I've worked for. Yes. A really great manager. Yeah, you know, I would say, you know, if you work late tonight, then, you know, don't come in tomorrow morning. And it was, uh, you know, good with the balance. The work-life balance. Yeah, work-life balance. Great in terms of supporting you, helping you. Yeah, so I was in research at Potter's and I, I was there for a in, in Melbourne for a couple of years. And, and as a young child, and maybe it was because when I used to go to school, Dad would drive me to school and then he'd keep driving and he'd drive into the city. And he was in, in Collins Street as doctor, a Collins Street doctor. And I suppose he used to wear his suit and his tie. And, and I always sort of liked that idea, I think, of yeah, wearing a suit and tie. I know, sorry, I didn't put my tie on for you this morning, but... You're looking I, fine. I know in Western Australia, you, know, you have very high standards of <laughs> dress. <laughs> that gave you a bit of an impetus for the suit and oh, tie. Yeah, the, yeah, the, and all that stuff. And, 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 and in my head, I, I wanted to, I thought, I want to work in Melbourne. I want to work in the city. Yes. I like to work in Sydney. I like to work in London and I like to work in New York, and which eventually I did. Unfolded. You know, some, some with potters. The first you know, X amount of years as an industrial analyst and then I went to London with potters, but I had to change. I would have liked to go as an analyst 
because I like that idea of you know working out what a company's worth, analysing it, you know, getting that sort of competitive bit of information. Yes. But I couldn't. There was no job as an analyst. And Potters had just tied up with Warburg's UBS, you know, before the UBS deal. And I was over there, and and it was it was an interesting time. I was on the institutional sales desk in London, but luckily around the time I went there, this was when John Elliott was going to was Fosterizing the world. Yes. You know, Fosters or Elders or Fosters ended up making a takeover bid for, was that Allied Lime, I think it was, which was a, a big UK brewer. Like I'd just arrived in London a couple of months earlier. I was on institutional sales, but I was the Fosters Elders analyst back in Australia. And uh, Warburg's were defending, they were defending Allied Line. Right. So they rolled me into the finance director and, and I sort of just took them through how, you know, John Allett, how he was manipulating his profits, you know, how, you know, their profits weren't their real profits because what they, what they would do, they would, they would buy companies and they'd put them in as current assets and then they'd sell the company and then they'd make a big profit on the sale of the company and they, they would run, it would go through the P&L. Right. So you couldn't see it. Yeah, so in theory it should have been yeah, an extraordinary profit, but it was they ran it through the P&L and because they were buying and selling companies all the time, it boosted their P&L. Yeah, so that was interesting. So from a corporate perspective. Yeah, Gave you a talk. thorough insight. Yeah. Tell me about the 80s in terms of the lead up to, oh, the, to, the, to lead up. To the 87 crash? Yeah, and then, yeah. And then okay. here you are in the 87, mm. experiencing the 87 crash firsthand. Well, let's go, let's go before it. The 80s was extreme. So I was working for Potters in London, was there for a, a little while on the institutional sales side, and then then an opportunity turned up to like, – I wanted to work in New York, and then I got sort of tapped on the shoulder and said, hey, look, do you want to go and work for another broker, Macintosh, uh, Hampson, Orgavet, or Macintosh Securities end up being called – and being end up being taken over by Merrill Lynch. Do you want to go and work with them in New York? So I said, yeah, that would be great. So I, I turned up there, 86 – latter part of 86, and, and it was just extreme. You know, so I arrived there, and this is, you know, what am I, you know, sort of late 20s, arrived there, and Macintosh was part-owned by Horgavet, which was a UK broker, which was then part-owned by Security Pacific, which was a US bank. And we know, you know, we've seen recently with the, the a few bank problems over there. Yeah, they, they've got a lot of banks. Yeah, yeah. Security Pacific doesn't exist anymore. It was <laughs> unfortunately one of the banks that are, after the '87 crash disappeared. And so I go into the. I arrived there. I think on the Thursday. On the Friday they were moving offices. So I went to meet all the people, and it wasn't only there was sort of three Australian people working for Macintosh, but then also we were in this. We were in the Security Pacific building. And we're also working with the Horgavet people. So you had UK equities, you had a bit of US equities, you had European equities. So it was like it was a, a real, only on a small scale, but a real you know, global dealing team. Great experience. Um, oh, great experience. So yeah. they turn up there, you know, to help them move on the Friday and they get a dozen bottles of Moe. And I thought, <laughs> wow. And like, this is a bit extreme. <laughs> anyway, so you know, they, they go through them and then... Actually, then we I went out with them. And, oh, geez, that's right. I don't think I got up till about three or four o'clock the next day. It was for the listener. I can see Jeff's body language must have been a big one. Well, that's right. It's just the well. Unfortunately, I didn't know. Like I was used to drinking mixed drinks in England, where they give you hardly any alcohol and all mixer. 
But in the US, they give you half <laughs> of the whatever the you know, whiskey or gin or whatever it is and a little bit of mixer. So, uh, yeah, that was a tough one. But then go to work. My first day of work is on the Monday. And you've got to do an exam over there. So securities, uh, what was it? Anyway, an exam to be able to operate over there. So oh no, then, then we get to the next Friday and another dozen bottles of Moe turn up. And I said to someone, what's this for? And they said, oh, it's John's birthday. Anyway, so they all have a big night. Anyway, we're studying for these exams and then we finish studying. Then the next Friday, we, yeah, we finish studying and then again another dozen bottles of Moe turn up. <laughs> and I said, what is this for? And they said, oh, because we've finished studying. Yeah, because there's three of us doing the exam and we had, yeah, we we just done the exam or something like that. And then literally every Friday, like in 87, it was, it was extreme. Yeah, so we had, we had clients. In those days, brokers couldn't, you know, they had to deal through Australian brokers. US brokers had to deal through Australian brokers to get access to the Australian market. Right. It was before deregulation. And I, one of my clients was, you know, I had uh, institutional clients. But also I had, you know, we dealt with the brokers as well. And one of them was Morgan Stanley. And I remember the guy at Morgan Stanley, he would say, oh, look, Jeff, you know, next Thursday, he was an Aussie, but he said, next Thursday, let's go out for dinner. I said, no problem. And he said, oh, I'll bring my wife. And I just went by myself. Yes. So I'd turn up there and by the, and when I've turned up, he'd already ordered a bottle of Cristal champagne. Goodness. And then he'd have another bottle. And then another time he said, oh, look, actually – why don't we go and play tennis at my club? You know, I think it was called the Tuxedo Club and it was sort of an hour out of New York. He said, look, why don't, you, why don't we do it on Saturday morning? You come and pick me up. So pick him up in a stretch limo. You know, we go out to the, <laughs> you know, the club or his you know, club. We play, you know, play tennis. Uh, there's me and another guy, you and you know, So there's two of us and two of them, you know, a mate of his. We go and play tennis, have lunch there. The stretch limo waits. And then drives us home. Like it was just money, and 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 the US they like getting a taxi for me in Australia was embarrassing. Yes, <laughs> no, you know, but over there it was, you know, just cars, money. It was just extreme. Uh, like there was money flying everywhere. And around that time, and you just got absorbed into the whole thing. Like we, I remember there was a company called Private Blood Bank. I don't know if you're uh, anyway. They floated a dollar, weren't going anywhere. Then, then all of a sudden, what they did is they stored blood. Right. Well, that was the theory. They stored blood. And I was at Macintosh, and they were big supporters of Private Blood Bank. And so, and we, we'd all be, we'd all be punting ourselves. So I think I bought, and they, they went from a dollar like to three dollars. And evidently, this was, you know, this was going to be the way you could store your blood forever. And around that time, age was big. Yes. So everyone was, oh, geez. Taking advantage it, of it. Incredible. You store your blood forever. And then if you ever need your blood. And I, I think I bought 10,000 shares at you know, $3. And, and then it was going up a dollar a day. And so you're making $10,000. Because over there, of course, you don't have, there's no mobile phones. So after work, we'd go to the restaurant or something like that. And then we'd ring, you know, we'd find a phone somewhere and we'd ring back to Australia. What's the price? Oh, and it's gone up a dollar. So I made ten thousand. Oh, another bottle of Moe. Yeah, like let's get it. And it was it was just like that. It was yes. just it was just an extreme time. And and to the extent where I started putting on a little bit of weight, I think I got up to a hundred kilos or something like that. And <laughs> and I thought, 
wow, yeah, this is this is a bit extreme. And then oh, then are we getting the crash? Yeah, we, yeah, because it all came tumbling down. Well, but the crazy thing is, and this is, and I was at Macintosh, and Macintosh floated, and this is before the, so we're 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 a month before the crash. And I remember going into Fidelity, which was one of our clients, going to their, you know, taking an analyst to see them up in Boston. And I remember looking at the market and coming out, and then the market had fallen a lot. And, yeah, like it wasn't, you know, maybe it was, you know, in those days it was 50 or 60 points. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a big move. And, and over the month before the crash, the volatility increased significantly. And back in the early 80s, you know, when I started at Potter's, you know, so when I got my first job, probably some of the best advice I was given by a, a very senior broker was you make your money in your second bull market. And I didn't quite know what he meant by that. But when whatever money I made in my first bull market, I lost yes. in the first bear market I experienced. And then I, I realised what he was saying is you're a lot wiser when you come to your second bull market. And the 87 you know, the bull market in 87, you know, that finished in the latter part of 87, was my second bull market. And the market was was very volatile. That, that month before the crash, there was an enormous amount of volatility. And volatility, you know, that made me scared. And I actually bought – I sold pretty much all my shares Yes. before then, except, unfortunately, my Macintosh security shares, <laughs> which uh, which I was working for. And then, yeah, then – then the crash happened. But before the crash happened, on the Friday before the crash happened, the market fell about 100, a little over 100 points. And I went down with the, this is the Aussie that worked at Morgan Stanley. Yes. And we went and met down the pub at the close to celebrate history being made. Because on the Friday, that was the biggest point fall since 29. What we didn't know was back on the Monday, the market was going to fall 508 points. Yeah, so we ended up sort of saying, oh, look, we've seen history and it had the weekend and then come in on Monday and we didn't get – no one went anywhere on Monday. It was – well, some of the international guys were out at lunch. They didn't come back. We were there and it was – the market fell like 508 points on that day and it was just mayhem. And and it was was a tough time. Like there was a number of – like people – Unfortunately, when there's that type of dislocation in such a short period of time, you know, people lose a lot of money, you know, they lose their livelihoods. Yes. I think a couple of brokers got shot because their clients lost money, you know, people committing suicide. Yeah, you know, it, it was it – was Very a, harsh. Yeah, it, it, w- it was very harsh. But that was the, you know, the 87 crash. When you look at that, Jeff, clearly it had an impact on how you manage money now. <laughs> A bit, you know, bit more conservative. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Did, when you look at the, the outcome, yes. well, you saw both sides. Yes. How did it shape you when you look at just your DNA? Did it change at that point in terms of how you understood the market? After the crash, well, first of all, before the crash, we all knew it was too good to be true. And when it's too good to be true, it doesn't last. And we all knew it would happen at some point in time. And I remember then talking to a friend before the crash, you know, I talked earlier about driving around Australia with my then-girlfriend, now wife. Yes. Back around, before the crash, I remember a broker, when we were talking, you know, saying, look, hey, this can't last forever. When the music stops, let's go and, you know, let's take a year off or something like that. And, yeah, we didn't necessarily expect the music to stop so quickly. Yes. But once the music had stopped, yeah, it was – I actually thought I was ultra-bearish – once the music had stopped, yeah, once the crash had happened. And it was pretty painful because the Australian market 
you know, we had all the entrepreneurs back in those days, you know, the Bonds and the, the Elliots and the, you know, the Briley's and the Ariadne's, and et cetera, et cetera, Bruce Judges. And the entrepreneurial index was, I think it was 10% of the market by capitalisation. And that just disappeared. So the Australian market, and this is sort of the pain, the US market fell you know, 25% and the Australian market fell 50%. And it was really hard when you're breaking in the US because the Australian market just kept falling. Yes. So where the US market had stabilised. So you're ringing clients and saying, they're saying, look, why, you know, why does your market continue to fall? And why, why was? Because everyone was just bringing their money home. A lot of international you know, money had gone in and that was just coming home. The entrepreneurs went under or just disappeared. So 10% of the market by capitalisation just disappeared. Yes. So it was a really, a really tough time. Yeah, and, and actually uh, over that time, this was – and that's when I sort of got a little window into what it could have been like to be an alcoholic. Yes. Because, you know, you'd have a tough day at work. We'd all go out for a drink afterwards. And then you'd realise – then you sort of realised, hey, I'm actually relying on, you know, that drink to, to sort of dull all the pain. Yeah, so it was tough. And, then, and I, actually around that time I was – that's when I put a bit more weight on – and then I went vegetarian for three months. <laughs> no alcohol and vegetarian for three months. Had to come, had to come back to normal. <laughs> yeah, you got the weight off. Yeah, yeah. But, but in terms of, I mean, what you did learn is you did learn, and, and again, I thought that was it. Yeah, I thought the market's going to be tough for a long period of time. But you did learn that, that if you believe, and I remember one of my clients, I was sort of really bearish with the client, and he said, if you believe in capitalism, then you've got to be buying the market. And he was 100% right. And what I have learned from there, and, and even though, you know, we had that pain over that period of time, you know, within two years, the US market was a new all-time high. The Australian market took six years to get back there, but it, but it eventually did get to a new all-time high. Yes. And if you look at the, you know, the, the early part of 87, when everyone knew the market was expensive, the Australian market, I think, went up 50% and then fell, actually, it might have gone up 50% and fallen 60%. So over the year, you only lost 10%. And over the year, the US market, you actually were up 8%, even though you had a 25% crash in, you know, towards the latter part of that year. And so I think what it really helped you understand is that you've got to take a long-term view when you're investing. And there's a book I was looking at recently that looked at the US market over a 20-year period and said, that I think the market had done about 7 or 8% over that 20-year period. And if you take out the 20 days, that's the best day of performance of the market each year for those 20 years, that's only 20 days you're taking out, you're not in the market, your performance you know, is zero. Right. So, yeah, so the tough thing is you can be negative to the market, but you need to keep playing the game. You've got to be in it. You've got to be in it. Thanks for sharing that. So interesting. You ultimately end up back in Australia yeah. after that period of time. Now, I just want to take <laughs> a little bit of a left field topic here and I just want to talk about Karen. And the reason I ask this is that, you know, we talk about people who have shaped your life and influence yes. and- Clearly, there's a connection there and it dovetails into starting Wham, in essence, over time. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So, yeah, so come back to Australia, the you know, early 30s, staying at mum and dad's place in Melbourne. Yeah. Staying in a little room out the back, a little, yeah. And, yeah, trying to work out, you know, I've got to find somewhere to rent. And then one night, a couple of breaking mates, uh, Macintosh, I worked with, Jeff Stanson. They were, they were going out for drinks with some people and then dinner. So I wasn't invited, but they said, come along and we'll see if we can get a, 
a seat for you. So we went along. I went along, and then and there was this really attractive lady, being my well, wasn't yeah, it was just a really attractive lady then. There was no <laughs> no relationship that was there, and and yeah, then obviously I was very impressed with it, but I uh, and and there were fewer. Yeah, there was equal number of. Well, actually, there was one more guy. I think there was probably twelve of us, uh, maybe thirteen of us, and I, I was I was the extra guy that had gone along. And then we went out you know, after there for a drink somewhere, and, and then one of the other ladies there, I, I was looking for somewhere to move. She had just found a place, and she was looking for a flatmate. So I ended up moving in with her and another one of her friends into a into a house, and then and they were friends of Karen's. So then. I think we had a housewarming in those days. Used to have big parties and big housewarmings, and then I think one I, thing led to another. Yeah, that's right. Asked Karen if she wanted to dance, and that was the <laughs> that was the start of a beautiful relationship. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah. So you're back in Australia. You're now, but in terms of Karen, you, where she fits in, or because yeah. in terms of shaping your life, because yeah. to me, she you know, incredibly, incredibly passionate and a a real carer, and you know, highly intelligent. Very capable, and yeah. In terms of me, if I I should listen to her more, yeah. To me, she's a great mentor for me. Yes, she's always right. It just takes me a little bit of time to uh, to accept that <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it does thanks for sharing, Jeff. It's, yeah. So, and that's important because you're here in Australia, and, and ultimately you have to get to the point where you think I'm ready to go and do something myself. And the broken side of your professional life wasn't matching with where you're at in life and you wanted to change and you, you had to look at other ways of generating a dollar. Yeah. Well, actually, it wasn't necessarily focused on generating a dollar. It was, you know, so my daughter was four years of age and in terms of work, we both worked in the stockbroking world like it's a tough world. You know, it's highly competitive. The tough thing about breaking is... Internally, it's competitive, and externally, it's highly competitive. And you've got really smart people operating in, in that industry. I mean, one of the things, obviously, is always what's your competitive advantage? So, with our morning meetings, and everyone's, it's always been a bane of every breaker's you know, research and institutional sales, <laughs> how they operate. We just kept making it earlier and earlier and earlier. And I think we eventually sort of had the morning meeting at seven. So, you're getting into the office at quarter to seven. And I just thought, I mean, this is there's something wrong. Like if I can't have breakfast with my wife and my daughter, you know, there's something wrong. So I was sort of working on like how can I get more balance in my life and what does that look like? And around the same time, there was this book called The Empty Raincoat and it talked about, you know, your working life is going to be so much different. It only took about 30 years for these things to happen. And it said, you know, you'll do various, you know, you'll have – you know, various areas that you'll work in and, and you won't necessarily have a job but you'll have three jobs. And I, well, around that time, one of my then clients was Tim Hughes and Tim managed uh, Reg Grundy's money and Reg had a big lot of money he'd made in, you know, he'd sold out his television production yes. business. And I remember you know, having a lunch with Tim and Tim said, look, why are you broking? I was at a, you know, number 10 broker or whatever it is and uh, and I just said, hey, look, look, it's the fur-lined mousetrap from my perspective is I get really well paid but it's probably killing me. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, look, I've always loved 
you know, my early years as a fund manager, and I've always loved doing the analysis and picking the stocks. And he said, why don't you do that? And I said, oh, yeah, but you know, it's a big gap and I'm getting well paid while I'm doing this. And he said, well, I'll give you $10 million of Reg's money to start if you want. So then all of a sudden I've got an option. And it's around the time where I'm thinking, hey, look, I want it more balance in my life. Yes. So then I thought, and, you know, we all do things in threes for some reason. But then, then I thought, okay, what I'll do is I'll set up a little funds management business, manage the $10 million. I'll write a book because, you know, we all want to own a racehorse, own a restaurant, <laughs> write a book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'll um, maybe go on a couple of boards. And so I'll have a bit of a portfolio. You know, that was – and then what happened was, so I went on a couple of boards. Tim was a major shareholder in E-Trade, so I went on the broking board, not the public company, but the subsidiary, the broking board. Yes. Went on Cinema Plus's board as well, and which was a listed company. And then I you know, started writing a book with a gentleman. I thought, what can I write about? And I thought, well, it's really got to be the market. And English wasn't necessarily my strong suit. So I thought, look, why don't I do you know, similar to you know, the market wizards guy. Why don't I do a question and answer for fund managers? And I asked Matthew if he wanted to ghostwrite it for me and he said, no, I'm happy to write it with you. And I said, great, okay, let's write it together. And then let, you know, let's start with that you know, $10 million. So resigned from broking, you know, this is 80, 97, sort of October 97, thought, okay, I'll start on the 1st of Jan uh, 98 with the fund. Try to work out, like in those days, it was pretty cheap to put it together. And you know, go and talk to anyone you know. And I know Paula Dwyer, who has been incredibly successful on the boards you know, since then. She, she was setting up a fund management business. So she had a trustee. And I said, oh, look, I think my lawyer's going to charge me five grand. Can I use your trustee? Or so, oh. yeah. <laughs> so she gave me a copy of her trustee and just changed it. Yeah, you nickel and dime and, and, and get it going. And then I went to Tim. You know, I was ready to go on the 1st of January. You know, this is sort of in December and say, look, hey, everything's good, ready to go on the 1st of Jan. I said to Tim, and Tim said, how much are you putting in? And like all the money I had in the world was half a million dollars. And I said, look, I'm putting in my half a million. And he said, oh, I'll match it with half a mil. So all of a sudden I'm starting with a million dollars. So <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, well, where's the 10 million? He said, oh, well, I couldn't push him. Steady up, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So we started with a million dollars and then – Started writing the book and then Matthew, who he was you know, editor at Sydney Morning Herald, business editor at Sydney Morning Herald then, he was getting a bit disillusioned with journalism because that was around the time you know, Hart was having his problems with Burns Hill. Right. And the journalists, like he did nothing wrong, but the journalists were pretty brutal. Like just burn, he bought Burns Hill too high and had to recapitalise it. And Matthew sort of, you know, was very principled and said, I just, I'm not that keen on the way journalism's going. And he said, I want to get into funds management. And I was writing this book with him. So I said, oh, no problem. And he ended up getting a job, getting offered a job with someone else. And I thought, oh, God. You know, like I'm writing a book with him. I don't want him to go and work for another fund manager. Yes. So we, I think we had about $4.4 million of fund. So the annual fee was forty four grand. This was sort of April, May 98. And I said to Matthew, look, why don't you come and work with me? And I thought, he can work as... Yeah, an analyst, and then we can do the book together. And he said, well, I need to buy a house, so I need to get a – I need a salary. And I said – because I just said, look, can I just give you – can you, I just pay you out of the profits if we make any? 
And he said, no, no, I actually need a salary to get a loan. And I said, what's the minimum I have to pay? And he said, oh, 70 grand. I said, oh, great. So I'm losing. Uh, before other costs, I'm already You're down. I'm, I'm down. <laughs> so anyway, my logic was, oh, hey, if I can't get it up in size, then, yeah, then I'll have to downsize at some point back to one. So, but yeah, luckily, yeah, we grew it from, you know, that one million. I think Matthew joined us four and a half. Then a year later, it was sort of 14 and a half. And as you said now, I think it's 5.2 bill and we've got 130,000 shareholders. So it's been a long game, but we've got there. What a story. Tell me, why did you adopt the listed investment company structure in the first place versus an open-ended unit trust? Yeah. What was, that must have been a pivotal point. Yeah, it was interesting. When I set up Wilson Asset Management, again, yeah, for some reason we all get fixated on threes. So the logic was, and this was literally at the very start, we'd set up a pool development fund, which was sort of a lot more a venture capital one. I'd, I'd set that up while I was broking. Yes. And, and it was there if needed. So, yeah, we had $5 million in that, I think. So we had that to manage. Then we actually started with a unit trust structure. So we did start with a unit trust structure. And that's the one, you know, I put my half a million dollars in RG Capital and they ended up putting more in money money over time. And then around that time, you know, James Churnside, who was, he was a fund manager that I used to broke to, he gave me some research that Morgan Stanley in the US had done about the closed-end funds over there versus the mutual funds or the open-ended trust structures over there. And it was over a 50-year period, and those closed-end funds had outperformed by 2 to 2.5% per annum over right. that period of time. And yes. I just thought, look, what a great structure, because what it does, you, you never – one of the great positives about the closed-end fund is you never have money running in at the top of the market you know, or running out at the bottom of the market. And the average investor, he tends to buy at the top and sell at the bottom. So he gets – now, whatever, say the market does 10%, he gets 5% return. Yes. Because he's always doing the wrong thing. So it was a great structure that you were never forced to buy at the top or sell at the bottom and you could take a medium long-term view. So I thought what I'd do is, yeah, we'd have the little venture capital thing, we'd have the trust structure, the open-ended trust structure, and then we'd have a, a listed investment company for sort of more the retail people. Yes. And that was Wham Capital. We floated, you know, raised... Oh, well, it was 20 mil. It was oversubscribed, so we got a little bit more than 20 mil when we flooded that in you know, about a year and a half after we'd been... So that was in going, 1999. 99, yeah. Jeff, just on your first listed investment company, clearly you were out on your own doing it yourself with Matt? Yeah, with, with yeah, Matt. Matthew, and, yeah. and how did you go communicating with, you know, your proposed clients about... And I, I, I'm coming at it from a point of you set a foundation for the business when you went out there and you raised that first round in terms of engendering trust within a client base. Not necessarily. No? No, no I think that's – I'll take the credit. Yeah. You know, the great thing is, the great thing is you know, we can write history now. Thank you. I'll take that credit. <laughs> but no, <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there we're – like no one knows who we are. We, you know, we, we went around to – like of course I – had relationships with the brokers because I'd worked in the broking industry. So we went around all the brokers and Macquarie and E-Trade were the brokers to the issue. We had had, there was a listed investment company that I wanted to use as a shell and there was a weird situation happening. I bought 10% of it on market and someone was going to sell another 10%, but I was waiting for it to come on market and Rene Rivkin bought the other 10%. 
and this was before we flooded Wham Cap, and we were going to use that. And then Rene was going to use it for his unlisted thing. And so when we flooded Wham Cap, Rene wrote, you know, his newsletter in those days. Yes. He wrote Wham Cap up in his newsletter. The Rivkin Report. Exactly, the Rivkin <laughs> Report. Yeah, so I think it, I was just talking to, we're on a, the roadshow now seeing all our shareholders. And in Sydney yesterday, I think we had probably 600, 700 shareholders there. And uh, I think one of them was reminding me, yeah, Rene uh, came from the Rivkin Report. So so they were the ones that wrote us up. And and, and so we started with you know, a little over, well, 21 and a half mil. A lot of people you'd go to then and they'd say, oh, listed investment companies, they trade at a discount. Yeah, you know, so I'm not going to buy them. And you know, to me, there was no logic. Yeah, you know, like there's no logic for them necessarily to trade at a discount. From my perspective, it was a supply-demand equation. Yes. And if you had to, if you had equilibrium, it should be NTA. Yeah, you know, and the premium to NTA, yeah, premium to NTA isn't equilibrium, and the discount isn't equilibrium. So that was my logic, and and so we started off with Wham Capital, and and for the first, we had a cracking first two years, and we paid a three cent dividend for the first year, and because we had such a good year, we paid another. They were dollar shares, and we paid an, another eight cents fully franked. So the first year you get 11 cents. The second year we paid four cents and then we had a cracking year so we paid a special of eight cents. So in the first two years you got on your dollar you got 25 cents back fully franked. But we're still trading at a 20% discount. <laughs> so yeah, don't worry, no one had found us. <laughs> and yeah, it was a battle and it just yes. takes time. It takes time to tighten up those share registers. And, and what happened is the interesting thing is we started off and, and, of course, all the money came from the brokers, you know, Rene's people or, or the brokers, and we marketed the brokers, and that's where all the money came from. And so we thought, well, logically, we should go back to the brokers and market to them. And what we realised is the brokers, you know, that we were seeing, that they were actually, well, we were nearly competing with them because they give their clients the good ideas of stocks to buy. And that's the area, and we want them to buy us because we find those good ideas to buy. And so what we realised is that maybe, and we realised, like we started with 2,000 shareholders, and this is uh, the ones that loved you, you yes. know, that by, within two years, we'd lost 35% of our shareholder base. We're down to 1,300 shareholders. And we realised, and they are people that had bought in and they didn't know what we wanted to do. I remember before we floated, a guy rang me and it was a you know, dollar float and said, oh, before it listed, do you think it'll come on at $1.10? I thought, well, he's going to sell. We won't meet his expectations. So yes. it just takes time yes. to align the people with what their expectations match what you can deliver. Yes. So, yeah, we lost 35% of the share register in the first couple of years. And But what we realised is the people we're buying were our shareholders. So what we, we stopped you know, really focusing on just going and seeing the brokers and we started doing presentation to our shareholders. And then we, you know, we're doing Sydney, Melbourne. The director investor. 100%. And like here today, we've got 400 shareholders that are going to come along to the presentation. Yeah, so, yeah, and that's what we realised. Yeah, you know, we started communicating with shareholders. And to me, I like that because that's where you get the information and the bond and, and everyone's got something to add. Yes. So, Jeff, it's really interesting you highlight this because, you know, you've gone on to now build a portfolio of eight listed investment companies, as you said, around... $5.2 billion in shareholder capital, and 130,000 retail investors. Now, you've gone from, say, two to 130,000. Yeah. It's phenomenal. It is a bit of growth, yeah. <laughs> and this leads to a number of queries around, or just 
questions you how have you been able to do it and the connection I've seen you present at an Australian Shareholders Association presentation and the connection you have with your audience is to say it's strong is an understatement okay and the way that they respond and they attentively listen and I saw what you present once this was a number of years ago and you were able to highlight to them out of your portfolio of listed investment companies, the ones they should be looking at and the ones they should leave alone for a while. And it was really quite interesting the way they were just really absorbing it. And I look at it and I think, well, how have you been able to do that over such an enduring period of time? It's a long period, it's 26 years since you've started. Is it the listed investment company business model with the frank dividends? Is it the communication that you just highlighted? Is it the investment and performance return? What are the sort of the, the triggers that have been able to enable WAM as a, as a company or as a fund manager to continue to do what they do and do it so well? Okay, geez, there's about 10 questions yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> there is, and I, I'm conscious of yeah, that. No, but no, well, let's, let's, where do we start off with? In terms of the, like the simplest thing is to be honest. Yes. Because, uh, and, and the beautiful thing is, see, ours are listed investment companies, so it's not an open-ended trust. So what you tend to find is most fund managers are always bullish because they always want someone to put money in their fund. So we're not, we haven't got that pressure. So we can be really honest um, if, we, if, we're, if we're nervous and think things aren't great. And also, you know, with the listed investment company, you know, the NTA is what the listed investment company is worth. So if it trades at a premium NTA, then... You're paying. You're paying for performance, and hey, I, I, I was I was bought up, yeah, you know, by a dollar for fifty cents if you can. Yeah, you know, like always, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, be as as frugal as you can um, in terms of investing. Uh, so, to me, it's yeah. To me, honesty with the shareholders is important, and also, yeah, you know, maybe it's the advantage of being one of six kids. So. Yeah, you know, so in terms of um, yeah, you know, communicating. Yeah, you know, I've, I've yeah, you know, I'm very comfortable communicating. I actually like people. I, I actually like people's stories. I, I'm fascinated. I know we're doing this. I'd love to do one on you, a <laughs> podcast, because <laughs> I love to. I'd love to hear your story. Everyone's got a great story, and the t- and, and the frustrating thing is, you tend to only hear the stories their funerals. Yes, <laughs> so. To me, everyone's got a great story. I remember one of our shareholders. He was he was in the um, air force, and I remember. Now this is oh, this is probably twenty three years ago. I remember his, he was in his eighties. I don't I don't think he's still around, but he was hopping on one leg and just saying and you know, just, you know, just showing how fit he was. But just interesting stories. And to me, it's you know, what we and what we try to do as a business is is really communicate well to our shareholders. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, don't do that. And it's good and bad, and you know, but you've just got to take both. And, and what, what tends to happen is, like when we get a bad email from a shareholder, you know, so you know, like we've got eight or nine people in the shareholder engagement comms area. Yes. Yeah, you know, they could deal with it, but I'd, I'd prefer to ring them yes. and communicate to the people. Um, yeah, so to me, it's it's just a uh, to me, it's a bit of a mindset. The fun the funny thing about listed investment companies, it is it is so simple, what you need to do, 
but it's so complex in terms of doing it because broadly for a, for a listed investment company to trade at NTA, what it's worth, you need to uh, stop all the selling below NTA and, uh, only, uh, and, and have one person to pay NTA or a premium. You know, so it's, it's very easy to say that. What's happened is, and we've taken over I think probably eight or nine or ten listed investment companies over the last little period. A lot, a lot of people think, oh, look, it's a great structure and it is. And, and the great thing about the structure is, like to me it's nearly too good to be true. You can manage a pool of capital and you can, not, you can buy it, you know you're managing it and you know it's worth a dollar and you can buy it at 80 cents. It's nearly unbelievable you can do that. Um, and so to me that's another you know, a real driver. But it, yeah, it's just a lot of people, a lot of fund managers think, oh, it's great, I'll set up a listed investment company and they don't give it the care and attention yes. that it requires. And it does need, yeah. So, yeah, it does need a lot of care and attention. Well, all the shareholders, you you got you you need everyone understanding fully what you what you're doing. Well, I, I was going to say there's a, you know, an old saying: a funds management business is only as good as its clients, and the clients have joined you and aligned themselves with you to the point where you've got 130,000. Yeah, and that alignment has come through a number of areas as we've just discussed, but you know, the, your communication strategy is, is thorough yes. to say the least. Yes. And, and it clearly is effective in the terms of the, what the message you communicate and, and yeah. when. Yeah. And uh, like I remember speak, you know, a few months ago speaking to a shareholder, I think he bought, he put some money into an AMP trust and he was upset about it and he'd been ringing them. And I think, no, well, I don't know who came back to them, but he was pretty frustrated. And then he bought, one of ours and he sent us an email, he was frustrated about something, so I rang him back. And he just, yeah, he told me the story. He said, like, that's, yeah, it's just a different, it's a different communication method. Isn't yes, it? yes. I just wanted to say that success of Wilson Asset Management has gone on in Another way, and that is in 2014-15, you set up the Future Generations companies. And and for the listener, I, I just want to highlight this in terms of Wilson Asset Management through Jeff uh, created the first listed investment companies in Australia to deliver both investment and social returns. And these are Future Generation Australia and Future Generation Global. And they were, they were designed to create or meet two objectives – Firstly, is to provide that steady stream of fully frank dividends, but the other was to deliver critical funding to not-for-profit organisations working to improve the lives of young Australians. To date, Future Generation has donated some $65 million. I mean, can you believe this? Yeah, it's, it's quite... It's no, quite no, I actually can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's... When you look at it in the, in the strong, hmm. cold, hard light of day, that is a phenomenal achievement. Now... And we'll do ten million a year, forever. It, it's an annuity, mm. yeah. So, tell me. I mean, clearly there was a passion within from yourself, but also within the team to give back. And I say give back in terms of a word to use to explain it. There's probably a lot more to it. But you know, how did that come around? I, I suppose if you go all the way back, yeah, you know, when, when you set up a company, and initially it was just me, and then it was me and Matthew, and yeah, you know, then at you know, you know, now we've got fifty-five people. 
uh, and you sort of when, when you're trying to work out your, your why, like why do we exist? And we did that a number of years ago. And, and and what we concluded is why we exist is to make a difference. Now, initially the make a difference was, uh, you know, like the logic of setting the business up was I put my money with someone else's money and we can be seen as an institution so we get access to all those things they do. We get access to companies, we get placements at a discount, we get IPOs. Um, yeah, so, it, you know, we get that competitive position. Yes. So it was, um, yeah, it was, that was sort of the, the, the logic of, um, you know, w- making a difference for the investor. And then I suppose it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. As, as we go up, you know, as we've got you know, food and shelter, you know, then you can make different decisions. And, and then as the business has grown, it's, okay, we're not only going to make a difference for our shareholders, our investors, but we can actually you know, so, sort of support the community we operate in. And like in the early days, you know, things like and, – and I'm a big – well, do I believe in – is it democracy or is it benevolent dictatorship? <laughs> I'm not sure. But you know, I remember years ago there was only 10 of us and someone would ring up and they'd say, oh, can I speak to the boss? And I said, well, we don't have a boss. Yeah, you know, like we're all equal. Yes. Uh, uh, and another thing we've done is, yeah, in the old days, we'd like in terms of someone would be raising some money for something, so I'd make the decision. So I like we'll give them X amount, yeah, you know, five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars. And so what we decided a number of years ago, look, we'll give everyone they've got their normal salary, but we'll give everyone that works with us. We call it Wham Gives. We'll all give them ten thousand dollars to give to whatever charity they want each year. Because all the science, you know, it doesn't have to be your money. You still get the positive benefit of giving the money. Yes. So to me it's um, – It's extremely generous. Well, it's just sort of a way of democratising yes. you know, what we do and that internal giving thing. I mean we still give money to various causes you know, at the corporate level. And maybe it's being you know, one of six kids and maybe it's you know, going on my you know, dad's Saturday morning – you know, he'd go around and see all his see his patients at, at their homes, and I'd sit in the car and wait for him. And you know, maybe it was, yeah, you know, it's a bit of that. And our know, mum was, you know, be involved in various organisations. Maybe it's that sort of learning at a young age to the part of living in a community is giving back. Yes. And then with the future generation entities, you know, the fortunate thing is I was in the UK, what ten years ago, and reading the FT, and I, I saw this guy Tom Henderson, who's is related all the way back to Henderson Asset Management, but he was a yeah, hedge fund guy, and he was setting up a effectively the structure that I copied to set up Future Generation. It was called the Battle Against Cancer Investment Trust. Right. So I just thought, what a great structure, you know, And I'd love to do it in Australia. And actually, this is uh, the, the we started our roadshow for Future Gen. We started. Where do you start your roadshows? Here in Western Australia, Perth. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, in Perth. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I can remember as it was yesterday coming over here, and we thought, oh look, we'd be lucky to raise, you know, thirty mil, forty mil, fifty mil. Yeah, and it was oversubscribed, and and now now there's a billion dollars in the two entities, and yeah, so that's ten million a year goes to you know support youth at risk and youth mental health, and to me the great thing is, you know, the broking industry been great supporters of it. The fund managers industry, yeah, you know, like they're managing the money pro bono in their main funds. 
Yeah, to me, it was the finance industry is incredibly generous, and it, it was to provide a vehicle for it to be obvious. I think their generosity and and the sixty five million that's the that's the finance industry. Yeah, I've just put together the vehicle. Yeah, the vehicle for it to happen. So, oh, Jeff, it's, yeah. it's a very very impressive. Yeah. To follow on from that, it was around two thousand and eighteen. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were awarded an officer of Australia of the Order of Australia yeah. for services to the business and finance sector, professional financial bodies, and the community as a supporter of charitable foundations. That must have been a pretty proud moment. Yeah, it was. It was. I don't like the word proud. Right. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was. Yeah, a great surprise and and well. Well, I wouldn't say recognition, but yeah, like uh, to me, it was it was quite an amazing situation. One of the sort of sad parts about it is you sort of like someone puts you up, and and it takes you a while. <laughs> you get a letter in the mail, and you say think it's coming, so you know it's coming, and then because you've got to say whether you want it or not, <laughs> and then you get it, and that's when it becomes public, and then. Then I wanted to backtrack and find out, well, who put me up? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> I know, but the sad part is that Ron Walker, you know, Ron who, you know, Lord Mayor of Melbourne, you know, was chair of Fairfax for a period of time. Right. Yeah, you know, set up Hudson Conway with Lloyd Williams. Yeah, you know, I came across Ron when he was setting up Hudson Conway and I was breaking in New York and uh, we took him around to see clients. I remember it, it was a, actually it was a funny story. It was a small construction company, Australian construction company, coming to New York, wanting to go and see investors and we couldn't get anyone. You know, there was hardly anyone that was interested. So luckily I got this guy, uh, Steve Silverman, he's a fund manager, he was at Merrill Lynch and they're out in Princeton and it takes you about an hour, an hour and a half to get out there. So, yeah, in those days, busy limos, yeah, this was before the 87 crash. This was you know, just probably about two months before the 87 crash. So Ron comes over. And normally you'd have a, a full roadshow. You know, you're taking them to see 20 clients. Yes. And I said, Ron, we're just going to do the special ones. You know, the, we're just going for the bullseyes. We're not going to just do the scattergun approach because, because effectively we had no one. <laughs> and I said, uh, we're going to spend most of the day just going down to see Steve. And so we go down and he would never let – he would always – the company would go in with Steve, but he wouldn't – I had to sit in the limo, wait. And then – yeah, so I had a good chat with Ron on the way down and then – and this is, yeah, that's what I said, yeah, 87. And he went and saw Steve and, and then on the way back. And then he went back to Australia and then Steve bought 10% of Hudson Conway, gave me an order to buy 10% of Hudson Conway. So anyway, that's – I met Ron through my Macintosh days and, and when we were – set up the fund, yeah, Ron put some money in the fund and actually he was on one of our boards, uh, one of the listed investors coming board for a while and then unfortunately – yeah, he got sick. He you know, got cancer and and fought it, and it's done an incredible job. Yeah, you know, he got it was melanoma cancer, and he's he got the drug actually put on the pharmacy schedule, so right. Australians can get it. And he, he yeah. was he was flying to America to get it to America, and it prolonged his life for quite a period of time. And unfortunately, so I get my AO, and by the it took me about three or four days to find out who put me up. Ron Ron put me up. So then I rang him to thank him. Yes. I never spoke to him. Oh. That, that was the day he died. Oh. Mm. Yeah, sad. Very sad. Anyway. Well, 
I mean, the fact that you were awarded it. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, it was nice. Very yeah. nice, yeah. very nice. I just wanted to cover off too, Jeff, on the flow on from establishing such a business and the future generations and, and having this retail investor base of 130,000 has enabled you to do things that aren't really within the reach of others. And yeah. and I say that in terms of your your professional skill set and being able to advocate for retail investors on a variety of issues that are tangible to them. And you're well known for being a champion of the retail investor. And it's it's only as recent as today. I saw it in the Australian Financial Review and there's a headline, Total Ignorance, Wilson warns franking changes will cost the budget. I go back, you had a huge effect in 2018-19 when Bill Shorten tried cracking down on the franking credits, which he later admitted was a policy that might have cost them Labor the election. Um, you had a huge role to play there, advocating against virtual AGMs and currently on the front foot advocating on government's bid to raise additional funds by modifying the legislation on franking credits. Tell me a little bit about your mindset on this in terms of you're in there and you're batting away for the everyday investor, but you're also clearly looking at it from your own perspective as well. Can you just give us and the listeners a bit of an insight into this? And, and because it is what, why or why, or? and also the way you go about it to be able to make a difference. It, yeah. It's, well, it's the, a well, big the, thing. The why is effectively the retail investor has given us a license to operate. Yes. So, fund management is a very profitable business, and effectively, it wasn't for our one hundred thirty thousand shareholders. Then whatever wealth that the 55 people that work at Wilson Asset Management have, it wouldn't be there. So, you know, we have to be indebted to them. Yes. Uh, and the reason why we do these roadshows is because it's their company. And and you know, as, as we're both investors in the market, how many times have we seen management and boards that haven't stood up for shareholders and, you know, done the right thing by shareholders? So, yeah, you know, like deep down, it's it's about doing the right thing, yeah. and 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 it's thanks for for the examples you use there. Everyone thinks that we're one side of politics, and yeah, you know, we hit the liberals as hard as we could on the virtual AGMs as well. So like, we're standing up for what we believe. It's just the fact that Labor happens to do, have done more, yeah, um, that we've tried to stand up against, and and so that's where it comes from. And as we've grown as a business, then we can be more sort of strategic and, and it is t- does take a lot of risk. But back in 2018, 2019, when we started, it was March 2018 when they announced the policy and we started that day advocating against it, the, some very, you know, very senior business people, and this is probably when we're halfway through it, said, look, Jeff, why are you doing this? Because yes. everyone knew Labor was going to win. Now, even the night of the election, Libs was still six to one. Everyone knew Labor was going to win. And then I thought, oh, well, I'm going to get a tax audit. I'll probably have ASIC on me, <laughs> like to me. And like they're saying, why do it? You know, like you're just hitting your head against a brick wall. Isn't it stupid? And, and it, for us, like it did get very personal. Back in February, it's dirty. Like politics is a dirty, dirty game. I'll never go into politics. Right. You, know, you think, you think you know, we work in the corporate world. You think that's tough. But it's just effectively we're like, you know, is it the Queen's 
you know, was it Queen's Rules or boxing? Yeah, you know, like we're we're all above the belt. <laughs> where yeah, you know, politics is cage fighting, yeah. and we got pulled into that when um, I think Bowen was saying that yeah, you know, he's he's had access to a secret conversation I had with my third cousin once removed, Tim Wilson, and about yeah you know, about the uh, yeah you know, the Franken credit stuff and. That was a shareholder call, which he did in September 18. We put it on our website in September 18. It's still on our website. <laughs> so, but they just twist it around and, yes. um, yeah. Yeah, so to me, would I do it again? 100%. Yes. Oh, and actually, we are doing it again. And and each time it's it's slightly different. Yeah, where then it was an election, uh, where this has got to be more sort of hand-to-hand combat. Yes. So we've got to, you know, what we need to do, there's a Senate inquiry next year. Tuesday, which we're presenting at, we need to get the Greens and or Pocock to block it in the Senate. And that's what, you know, we met with the Greens, met with Pocock, met with a lot of the Liberal people, met with some Labor politicians, but Albanese and Chalmers, they won't meet with us. We, you know, we keep asking them. But that's their thing. And, and, and while we're doing it is we believe that, you know, what they're proposing is, will be negative for the Australian economy, Australian investors. I mean, and actually the weird thing is someone asked me yesterday, they said, oh, well, this, you know, what about this just helps the old people? What they're, the bit of legislation that we're really cranky about is the, the one that stops a company from paying a fully frank dividend. If, if, if a dollar of capital that's raised at any point in time, either before it pays the dividend or in 100 years after it pays the dividend, if the ATO say that dollar helped them pay the dividend, the whole, like, it could be a $100 million dividend is unfranked. And that's, like, particularly over here, small growth companies. Yes. You, you lose money, lose money. You finally make some money. You pay tax. You want to pay a fully frank dividend to your investors. It allows you to raise money at a higher valuation. And you can use some of that money you raise to pay, you know, to fill the funding for the dividend. Now, to me, it's just illogical. And the impact that'll have it's actually going to be on the yeah. You know, it's going to be on the younger generations. They're the ones it's going to have impact on. When you won't have a, a like, there's two point five million small companies in Australia. Like they are the lifeblood yes. of Australia. And the large companies have got excess franking. They can either borrow money and pay a fully frank dividend. Yeah, you know, they can't raise capital. Or if they got excess franking, why bother investing in Australia? Like let's invest somewhere where it, I don't pay the tax. So to me, it's. Like it's illogical. And unfortunately, I just don't think they understand. I think Treasury understand. Yes. I don't think the politicians understand. So when you look at it in that light, it's a very important role you're playing. We think it is. Yes. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that's right. That's sort of what keeps driving us. Yes. Thanks for that. And as I say, it's only just, again, a, a topic that is clearly coming out in the, in the press at the moment. And how do you feel about how it's going to unfold? This current one, yeah. Well, we've got to yeah, we've got to stop it in the Senate. Yep, yep, yeah. That's the goal. <laughs> well, the last one was stop it in the Senate as well, because we all knew that Labor was going to win that election. So we had actually we were campaigning against Labor, effectively, or campaign yeah you know, for the franking, for them to stop that. And then we and then we'd started literally the week before the election, we'd started meeting the senators so we could block it in the Senate. But then, of course, Labor lost the 2019, the unlosable election. So we never had to keep going. Unfortunately, this time there's not an election. (laughs) Gosh. Yeah. 
Jeff, I'm really conscious of time. I've just got some general questions. You've been so generous with your thoughts and your insights. These are general questions around where we're at at the moment. If you had some advice to give some emerging fund managers, just starting out, they're looking to try and raise capital, what would be your 30-second overview on how you would help if they came to you and said, oh, look, I just need to get started, Jeff. What are, what are some keys? Well, um, some great advice Greg Perry gave me when I started off the funds management business. And Greg, an icon of funds management, retired a number of years ago. And he said in terms of investing, he said, look, just, just really you know, do your homework and focus on not losing money you know, in terms of your investments. And I suppose he was saying, don't take too much risk. Uh, but in terms of building a business for the fund manager, it's tough. Yes. And I mean, just get the track record, build the relationship with the clients. Yeah. And that's, and, and I think we do surveys of our shareholders. I think the highest way we get a, a new shareholder, I think 28% of the people that respond say it's, it was referral. Like someone said, oh, look, yeah, someone's told them that rather than the, a financial planner or I think that's 20 in the mid twenties. Yes, yes. So it's, yeah, you just got to. That's very and, powerful. And, yeah. But, and be open and yeah, transparent and yeah, it's communication, isn't it? Following on from that, you talk about losing money. How do you personally handle losing money in an investment? You know, if you use an analogy, like a, a good Western Australian analogy, you get caught in a cray pot. Once you're in, you can't get out. Yeah. You know, what, how do you, do you, do you hold, I mean, in some cases you can't get out, but you know, do you hold your losers? And to what point do you call it quits and say, right, let's move on? You must have been looking at our we, – we used to have a category. I think it was Craypot. <laughs> oh, did you? It's an old analogy. <laughs> That's right. Oh, with the losers, I mean, you're always going to make mistakes, aren't you? And to me it's – the quicker you accept you've made a mistake, the better, isn't it? And, and I, tend to, I tend to like to sell them. Yes, but but I do like if there's if there's a little bit of hope, I do hold on because, as I said years ago, we used to have a little category, yeah, uh, which was the K-pop crap, and and some did come out of there, and some, I remember when I'd say to Matthew, God, we should have kept that, yeah, like or or look what remember what that happened with that one, or uh, it, it's difficult, it's difficult, it, like if the if something's changed significantly, then you got to to me the biggest thing is accepting you made a mistake. Yes. And sort of, like, I like getting it out of the portfolio, then I don't see it anymore. <laughs> Forgotten. <laughs> yeah. But if you think there's a chance, then obviously you keep it. You referred to it earlier. One of the key aspects you look at when you're investing a stock is management number one? Yeah. I think, I think management, because just like, you know, say if if people are giving us money to manage and Hey, and I'm the old guy. You know, you're giving money to the people that are managing those, you know, those various eight funds. You know, the, the senior portfolio managers. So, you have to make an assessment of them whether you believe that they're good enough and they'll perform on your behalf. And yeah, to me, it's you know, management's incredibly important. I know, you know, Buffett says it's more the the franchise of the business, and I think that's if you take a yeah, you know, like a twenty or thirty or forty year view, or yeah, you know, a long term view, because eventually his logic is that management. Yeah, will get replaced and you'll yes. end up getting good management there. My view is I want someone who I think is going to deliver for me. Yes. Yeah, you know, managing and, and so management's very important. Like effectively we've got a little rating system. It's it's management, we rate it out of ten and multiply by two, so it's twenty. Then it's earnings growth. Because to me, 
you know, the greatest correlation of a share price in anything, I know people can say it's cash flow or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is earnings per share growth. Yes. Then it's valuation and then it's industry and industry position. And then we, we try to wait until we can see a catalyst that's going to change the valuation. But, you know, some stocks can be cheap for a long time. Yes. And, yeah, it's trying to identify that catalyst. And it's more, more with us is, oh, have we made a mistake with a catalyst? Or, you know, you know we expected a, you know, an earnings surprise and it wasn't. Or it ends up being a downgrade. And, yeah, you know, except you made a mistake and move on. Yes, yes. Yeah. And with investing, I, I think one of the big things, and I, I'm sure probably most of the people listening to this are investors. So, and this is the, the thing, you just got to work against your emotions. And that's the thing you learn. Yeah, so yeah, when you see the market falling, initially you, you feel, oh, wow, yeah, this is, you feel the pain, but you've got to successfully turn that around to be like pleasure. Oh, this is going to be great. I'm really going to find some great opportunities here. And yeah, working against your emotions is great on the investing side. And I think that's why a lot of people on the investment side a little bit eccentric. Yeah, because they're a little bit on the spectrum somewhere. I think we're all on the spectrum somewhere. Yeah, it's really yeah working against your emotion. And I, I try to take a medium long-term view. And the tough thing about working against your emotions, if you're really good at it, it's not good for home life if you're too successful on shutting down your emotions. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, so no, my journey for the last 20 or 30 years is to turn up the volume on my emotions. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. So it's an interesting point you make, though, is that you said earlier that you uh, make your money on the second bull market. market. Yeah. Well, you've got to endure a couple of downturns to to almost be able to do what you're saying. Yes, yes, and uh, to me, that's experience and being able to buy when there's, as they say, buy when bl- there's blood, blood on the, the streets. Street. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, like the tough thing is that's why that's why I'm a, like a bit hesitant about the market now. Now, the tough thing, I know we, you know... Well, that's one of my questions. What's your view on the market over the next 12 months? I know we talked about it earlier. I'll tell you the view and then, well, maybe I'll put the caveat now. And We talked about it earlier that, you know, like, I think the US market over a 20-year period, if you miss the, each year the best day, so 20 days, your performance wouldn't be 7 or 8%. It would be zero if you miss those 20 days. So it's really time in the market. So... It's it's nearly irrelevant what my view is of the market yes. because you you should be in the market. The question is how much cash you keep for if the market falls twenty or thirty percent and you don't feel any pressure to sell, and that's what I would be at the moment. I, I'd just be I'd be a bit nervous, but yeah, you know, I'd be cautious. And the reason I say that is, yeah, you know, we've had yeah you know, we talked about eighty seven. Yeah, you know, there's. Yeah, you know, I talked about when in yeah you know, when unemployment was ten percent. Yeah, we've had bull markets, bear markets. We've had over time, yeah, you know, recessions. Yeah, you know, where everyone loses their job. Yeah, you know, a lot of people lose their job and uh, the like. Here we yeah you know, we had a period up until a couple of years ago. So the longest bull market in bonds. Yeah, uh, you know, record low interest rates, which push push valuations up. And over the last couple of years, it's been yeah you know, since COVID. Obviously, there's been. Yeah, a, a bit of the excesses have come out of the market. I just don't think enough of the excesses come out. That's what, yeah, you know, I think a lot of people that have made, you know, when, when you hear stories about people may, making really easy money. Yes. It's not easy. No. So as soon as I hear a story about someone making some really easy money on Bitcoin or something like that, you know, well, they're going to have to lose that. 
because they've got to realise that it's not easy. And, uh, yeah, so that's – I just – yeah, maybe – I mean, one thing monetary authorities have been in terms of their willingness to pump money into the system, you know, since, since the GFC, they learned how – they learned, you know, well, effectively when they let Lehman go, yes. <laughs> they learned they made a mistake and they had to backpedal on that. And then, you know, with COVID, they've learned, hey, we just got to pump money into the system and we got to pump it in quickly. And even with you know, the you know, the bank crisis you know, recently, yeah, you know, they're just pumping it into the system. So whether that can keep us from a bear market, like it's bizarre. Yeah, you know, we haven't even had a bear. We're not in a bear market in Australia. We haven't had one. No, there's got to be some pain at some point. I just don't know when it is. Do you think the interest rate environment's going to have an impact? Further impact? Or do you think? I would, that... have, I would have thought so. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm more. I know everyone's. Yeah, saying, oh, inflation will get back to the levels it has. Like there's, I mean, there's a few structural things that have, that, you know, as a world, it's not as efficient as it was, you know, where everyone sort of, you know, bringing their manufacturing home or, you know, so there's there's an implied inflation cost there and, you know, money spent on defence and, you know, like, so there's, you know, there was the peace dividend. Remember, you know, when the Berlin Wall came down, oh, Equity markets went through the roof over because there's this big peace dividend. Well, haven't we got the reverse of the peace dividend now? So, to me, yeah, I'm surprised that the market's sort of going so well. Uh, but the tough thing is you, you've got to stay in it. Yes. Because you don't want to miss those. You don't want to miss one of those 20 days. No, no. <laughs> Obviously, we don't want zero. You're in Western Australia. I, I yeah. can't not but ask you, what's your view on the electrical vehicle, you know, thematic and the metals that drive that, the future-facing metals. How does how does Wham look at that? Well, obviously, we look at any ways to, you know, to, yeah. You know, I mean, play that. I know the the large cap guys, yeah, you know, play it. the The fascinating thing is, and and the great thing about being in West Australia is, remember the Sarage engine, and yeah, you know, that that didn't come to fruition, for I'm not sure for for a number of reasons. But what we do know is the electrical vehicle you know, that will come to fruition you know, and effectively we'll all be plugging in our vehicles eventually. Yes. So you know, the question is, the, I mean, to me, I, I should be referring to you. <laughs> <laughs> You're here on the ground, so you, 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 you know exactly. You, know, you, you have the best quality information. That's why you talk to the CEOs or the management because they know exactly what's happening. You know, so, you know, because we're positioned on the East Coast, we've got a significant disadvantage. So you know exactly what's happening here. But as a theme, obviously it's, you know, it's just a great trend, the, you know, the electrification yes. you know, will happen and eventually it'll uh, be like you know, everyone will, you know, well, uh, uh, whether it's our children's children or, you know, oh, are you, what, you had a thing called petrol. Yes, diesel. Yeah, geez. It's sort of like when I grew up, we used to put briquettes in the um, – and we still we still had one of those briquette fires. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> the sort of squash coal. Or, you know, like, <laughs> didn't have it for long. I was pretty young. <laughs> right. But you yeah. say, oh, you're petrol. Oh, you put, are you serious? You put petrol in a car. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, so, I, the, my last yeah. one is I, I just – I've heard you say you run by the idea that anything is possible. Yeah. Right? And I just wanted to 
possibly look at your insights in hindsight of your life and your successful funds management business, what you've been able to do on the future generations front, what you've been able to do as an advocate for the retail investor. I put that, you know, into the context of anything is possible. Just what are your takeaways on that in terms of when you look back at your life, did you think at the start, oh, gee, there's no way I would have been where I am now? No, no. Well, I, luckily, I didn't think that, and I never necessarily, I never necessarily wanted to be there. I do know. I remember when I, when I opened my HSC results because we used to get them in the mail there. I cried. I remember that because yeah, always an optimist. I thought I'd passed. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I'd actually passed my number. I'd passed, but unfortunately, because I'd failed English, I failed. In terms of anything's possible, to me, it is like anything is possible, and. Well, I mean, to me, this here's a great example. That's right. Someone who thought it'd be industrial chemist, or and what like what's helped me along the way is, I, yeah, I think that belief that anything could be achieved, and I think it's important to, you know, to discuss it as well. Like if you want to, if you want to achieve something, I, I remember when I was in the breaking side, there was a young guy who's working out the back end research, and yeah, you know, he, he'd said to me, I was running the institutional sales side up in Sydney. And he said, hey, Jeff, I, I'd really – I think he told me he'd really like to work on the option desk that we had. And then I was just leaving the office and he happened to be leaving with me one day. And he, he said, oh, how's your day? And I said, oh, it wasn't bad. You know, I've got to put an ad – I've got to talk to a headhunter. We've got to, we need a young guy on the dealing desk. And he said, I'd love to do that. And I said, oh, I didn't ask you because I thought you wanted to be on the option desk. He said, I just want to get out of research. Yeah. <laughs> and – yeah, you know, to me, it's so important. Uh, and, and with FutureGen, you know, when I saw that concept in the UK, like I came back to Australia and I spoke to a number of people about the concept and I actually ran across some other people that were thinking about the concept as well. Yes. And to me, it's, you know, it's that, you know, communication. It's, you know, it's talking to people about it, you know, if you have a concept or an idea. And also in terms of, I think you said at the start about like who's shaped your life. The, and I think I suppose one of the great things my dad delivered is he sort of – he never worried about who he spoke to, like in terms of communicating with, you know, up or down in terms of you know, the social yes. you know, network we operate in. So to me uh, – and, and, and when you come across these people, like when I became, I became a member of the Stock Exchange – I had to pay myself because my broker wouldn't pay, which is good in the end because then I got 166000 Oh, so it was a win there. Yeah, big win, a big <laughs> win. I got the shares. But when I became a member, I then I rang the chairman. It was Morris Newman, and he didn't know who, you know, who am I from a bar of soap. But I rang him and said, hey, look, I'd like to buy your lunch. So to me, any opportunities like that. And years ago when Malcolm was at Goldman's, I think after he, Malcolm Turnbull, after he left Goldman's, there was a little listed company he was involved in and, and we helped do something on that listed company. And I met him, I think we were both in New York at the same time, and this is years ago. And so then I said, hey, Malcolm, rang him up and said, look, I'd like to buy your lunch. And, and I, I was just fascinated in people's stories. Yes. And like, you know, I worked at Potter's for a little while and and unfortunately I, I never met Sir M. Potter, but I was fascinated with his story. You know, he was always entrepreneurial, looking for opportunities and to me, it's yeah. You know, if you can come into contact with someone that you're you're interested in, oh, and remember old, um, not old. Remember David Clark, uh, Macquarie yes, Chairman. Yes. 
Yeah, he was chairman of a board, um, McGuigan Wines, and we had helped raise them some money. And so I met David that way. And yeah, you know, I said, look, David, I'd like to buy you lunch. So I bought a lunch. And, and what, I, what I got out of that lunch, I was just interested in their story. Yes. I, I suppose just like this story here. And, yes. and I was just interested in what drives them, you know, why they did what they did, how they got where they did, and you know, try to, I suppose, pick little bits of that up and, and yeah. utilise it to help guide whichever way everyone wants to go. It's been a fantastic chat, Jeff, and I, uh, I really do appreciate your honesty and your just transparency around, and there's a, such an element of humility with this as well. And on behalf of Euros Hartleys, this is an absolute privilege to be able to sit here and just have this chat and understand a little bit about the swings and roundabouts you've been through in life and, and what you've been able to pick up from them and what's taught you things and what's shaped you. What I think the listeners will also take away is that it didn't all come easy and there's a lot of swings and sliding door moments that you've highlighted that it might have been different. Uh, good, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Point. It's really interesting. So, well, it's a journey. We can do it. So I'm 65. We can do it in another 65 years. See what, the, <laughs> see what I'm doing the next 65. I would love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we'll go, but where we go. <laughs> That's right. Good man. Jeff, so on behalf of us at Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, thank you immensely for taking the time out. You know, you are here for, as you say, less than 24 hours. You've squeezed in some time with us. It's been very generous and we really do appreciate it. So thanks. Uh, total pleasure. And hey, great to be in this you know, God's country. Thank you. Good on you, mate. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to Euros Harley's Finding the Front. This podcast is for general information purposes only. Please check out eurosharleys.com for more information. Euros Harley's holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.